Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Arena On Air. Today we have another installment of Arena Civil Dialogues. Today we'll be talking about no designer babies and what that means. Take a listen. Thank, thank you very much. It, we have been doing this now, it is our tense dialogue and uh, we really have a very productive partnership uh, with Arena Stage. Uh, the, the quickest way for me to get out of the way and let you listen to my colleagues is by uh, starting with this short uh, uh, personal note how I got into this uh, subject. Uh, in 1970, I had uh, four wonderful, smart, beautiful sons, but my wife wanted a girl. And uh, I, a professor at Columbia University, but what does a professor do? I went to do research, and I, I learned all kinds of interesting things. I was told that if you put the sperm in the certifuges, the male sper sperms are heavier, they're gonna fly out first, and, and, and all kind of other uh, such uh, uh, techniques. Well, to make a long story short, two years later, we got another boy. <laughs> uh, once he was born, the whole question immediately was mute. We loved him just as much if he was a girl. Uh, but uh, I became intrigued with the question, what would happen if people could do that? And so I started looking uh, left and right, and I suddenly realized that there was surprisingly strong data that in those days, there was people would uh, re over older boys by uh, roughly seven to ten percent, which, uh, as of course you all know, that nature gives us roughly a balance, but this would have considerably mucked up the balance and left millions of men without able to find a female mate. Now, uh, in a nutshell, that's really our story here. And that's where I want to just for a moment step back because what we see here, we, we are given through genetics, you'll hear, new choices, new freedoms. We cannot choose the, not only the gender of the fetus, but many more things. But with each of those choices, there to come some major ethical and social challenges. And that's what I want to talk about for a moment. So if you think about it in the broadest historical way, we used to be in early history passive toward our environment and nature. We believed that whatever happened, if it were floods or earthquakes or fires, these were the acts of God. And I mean, we could plead with the gods, but we didn't have a notion that we could do anything about it. And Aristotle already made the argument that we each have our destination. And if you are destined to be a, a pilot, a, a, a flute player, you should be a good flute player. And if you're a drum player, you should be a drum player. But you shouldn't try to do his job. He should do where nature casts us. And then the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages made a whole social theory out of that called status acceptance, which basically said to the peasant and the serfs, if you were born a serf, you should be a serf. And if you were born a lord, you should be a lord. Don't try to become a lord. And so we accepted nature, we accepted society. Then came enlightenment and science, and we start to say, no, we want to be in charge. 
and the symbol of it is the digging of canals. So I mean, no longer the, the, the rivers nature's gave us, canals, we decided where the water is going to go. And so that's kind of a symbol for what happened. We start to extract things from nature and change nature to suit our values and our preferences. Then came Marx and said, you know what? We can do the same thing to society. We don't have to accept society the way we find it. We can organize and rechange society. And then came Freud and said, you know what? Let's do the same thing about the psychic, about the self. Let's exercise the demons. Let's change ourselves. So I call that we move from a passive to an active orientation to change our society, ourself, our nature. And now we come into the last stage. Now we turn into our biological makeup and say it used to be given to us. We, we, we had no choice. Uh, it, it was genetic related. We had to live. And we're now going to muck it up. We're now going to put our finger in there, and we're going to say, we're going to make choices now. It will give us liberty, it will give us headaches. So that's really uh, what we're going to be talking about. Now, uh, a little more sophisticated headaches, or maybe more than headaches. Uh, we're going to do that the following way. We're going to have two rounds, and then we're going to get you all in here. Uh, in the first round, we're going to ask a question, actually two questions. Uh, one, why not allow people to use these new techniques to eradicate genetic hereditary illnesses. Some of these illnesses, like CF, are very debilitating illnesses. Why are you putting us a moratorium, which we have now, and say, wait a moment, uh, stop, don't do that. More tricky is the question which I, some people use the word enhancement, I use breeding. We allow now, in effect, for people to choose the gender of the fetus. This is not an illness, it's a question. Some people prefer boys, some people prefer girls. It's a breeding issue. Why not allow people also to choose the color of the eyes of their children? What's the difference between choosing gender and the colors of the eyes? So our first round of question is, now that we turned our active eyes and lenses on our biology, on our DNA, why not allow people to do therapeutic and breeding interventions? We have a tradition of relying on the bios in the people's brochures. If you're not introducing speakers, the floor is yours. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, let me begin by uh, making two distinctions. So the first is, uh, you know, what is new in what we're talking about? Um, so we have for a while tried to do what's known as somatic cell gene editing, right? So we have tried to correct uh, 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 genetic mutations that cause disease uh, in people by, you know, uh, et taking some of their uh, genetic material, uh, somebody else's genetic material, re-injecting it, trying to fix diseases like, for example, immune, immune uh, deficiency diseases, for example. Um, but when we do those changes, when we do those kinds of gene edits, those are not passed on to that individual's offspring. Okay. That's why we call it somatic, meaning b the body. Um, what we're now talking about is making changes that get passed on to future offspring and then future generations down the road. 
And the way you do that is that you uh, make a change in the genome. You edit the DNA at an early enough stage in embryonic development that the, the, the change will, f uh, will show up in the cells of this uh, uh, growing uh, individual, this growing embryo, including its eggs and or sperm cells, and therefore that change will get passed on to other uh, to their children and so on. So that's the first important distinction. The second is, you know, we have always tried to, in a sense, uh, you know, engineer our germlines, right? What is mating? What are mating rituals? What are, for example, online dating? There's an online uh, uh, a service that actually uh, uh, proposes to or purports to mate uh, people um, based on their DNA. So they actually do DNA tests uh, and uh, they will put you together with someone who has a compatible immune system, I think, is their, is their angle. Um, we have, you know, we have um, all kinds of elaborate mating rituals and the purpose of that, ostensibly, is to find a mate for ourselves or often it's for our children because it's debutante balls and cotillions and things like that, that will produce a, you know, a, a good offspring and good is not just, you know, a, a good is not just how they behave, it's how their genes, what their genes are composed of. Um, so we've also... Uh, for many years, since 1978, we've had in vitro fertilization, where we've been able to, uh, you know, to, to enable people to have children who couldn't have children before. Um, and we also have now in vitro fertilization with prenatal, uh, with uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So we fertilize a, an array of embryos, and then we te take a cell from each of them and test them. And we only implant the embryos that have a desirable genetic component. Now, so far, we've been doing that primarily with regard to, well, with regard to uh, screening out the diseased embryos, if I may use that term. But the possibility is that we can now be thinking about doing it for characteristics that are not just disease characteristics, okay? Uh, we also have, of course, pre, uh, prenatal genetic testing where you can find out something about a fetus. You can then, if you wish, choose abortion. Um, we have medicine which we, where we can cure someone or treat someone who otherwise would not live long enough to, be, to reproduce. So all kinds of ways we have been, in effect, you know, changing the human germline fairly deliberately. How many of you have heard of the basketball player Yao Ming? Played for the Houston Rockets. Um, so he was genetically engineered, right? What happened is that his, the Chinese government, um, when his mother, who was a basketball player, retired, the Chinese government um, retained her services to give, uh, to mate her with another basketball player and produce Yao Ming. He was then put into basketball school from the earliest age, and that was a deliberate engineering of a very accomplished, bas tall basketball player. So what's new now is, in effect. Those techniques, the ones that we've had in the past, they uh, don't produce changes that are not naturally there. So if we're doing, for example, in vitro fertilization and that genetic testing of the embryos and then picking the ones that we want to uh, implant and perhaps bring to term, we have, we're only able to select from the embryos that were produced in that in vitro process. What we're now becoming able to do with, for example, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing is to actually make changes that would not have been naturally there, right? So we're no longer choosing which individual will be brought to term, we're choosing the characteristics of that individual. And that's really quite new. Great, thanks so much. Um, I'll add a couple 
additions to what is new. So uh, Max said that, you know, previously using somatic gene transfer or gene therapy, we've been able to treat the person in front of us. We haven't been able to treat or correct an embryo previously. That's novel scientifically. It also means that we're able to ask permission of the person in front of us about whether or not they want to participate in this theory, therapy, right? Whereas, and in, especially when it's an experimental therapy, the product of a CRISPR experiment reproductively is a baby. That's the result of the experiment. We haven't done that before. Um, and as you said, this is uh, not just choosing among the embryos that exist, but in fact creating an embryo that could not have existed. And thinking about what informed consent looks like in that context and what the risk-benefit analysis is when not doing it means that a child doesn't exist is tricky. Um, the other uh, piece that I wanted to add, um, let me see if I can remember now, <laughs> um, had to do with for what kinds of conditions we would use this experiment, this, this treatment, uh, CRISPR. So, it would need to be a situation where either both parents have a mutation that you're worried about, because currently we, the chance that if you go through IVF that you're gonna have an embryo that doesn't have either of those mutations is pretty low. So we're talking about those folks, as opposed to folks who, for cystic fibrosis, which we were talking about earlier, usually, so cystic fibrosis is a recessive disease. You need two mutations, one from mom and one from dad, to have the disease in the offspring. So usually, if you go through IVF, you have embryos that have zero or one mutation and not two. So there would be no reason to do CRISPR. You just choose the one that is free of the disease. Right, because this is still an intervention that comes with risks. I mean, we are not good at this yet. We're getting much, much better very fast, but the risk-benefit calculus is not there to allow this to go forward right now. And you're talking about a very small part of the population that would need to use this as opposed to some other technology. And you also need the subpopulation of those folks who can afford to do it, which is an even smaller group of people. And those folks need to want a, genetic, a child that's genetically related to both of them and not be open to donor egg, donor sperm, or adoption. So that funnel becomes very <laughs> narrow at the end of those folks for whom this would be the only way of having a healthy child. So good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I'm just going to add on to this distinction between germline and somatic uh, and how we think about that and frame that. Um, but before I start, I just want to make one comment. Um, I work for the National Institutes of Health, but my conversation this afternoon is my own and not the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Health and Human Services. So these are my voices and my views and not theirs. But it's an exciting time. That's the message I want you to leave you with. It is an exciting 
time with regards to what is happening in biomedical research related to gene therapy and gene editing. And I want to focus just for a frame on this somatic and going back to your question about eradicating a disease and therapeutic and focusing on the therapeutic and somatic gene editing. We're at a point now where we can cure some rare genetic diseases. My own research group studies sickle cell disease, and sickle cell disease is one of the diseases that's getting a lot of attention about the potential of somatic gene editing to actually cure the disease. That's not impacting the germline, that's not future generations, but that individual with the burden of disease in front of us, that we are at a point now that we can cure a disease. But it still has risk, and we're still at a very early stage. And my research group really wants the voices and views of the communities, the stakeholders, those individuals living with the disease, their parents, and their physicians about what are they thinking about. And one of the issues that they are thinking about is what is the risk and what is this going to cost? And this issue of how this technology actually gets integrated into clinical care, I think is an issue that we must focus on now and study now to actually make sure for somatic gene editing and for these potential cures of genetic diseases that more people can actually benefit and that we are actually assessing new models of payment for this, assessing how we make decisions who gets uh, offered this, and how we make decisions about where the real burden for diseases may be, which may not be in the high-income countries, but in low-income or middle-income countries. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. I just want to add to the comments that have just been stated. There is an immense amount of suffering and despair as a result of many genetic disorders. So I too am very excited about the possibility of using gene editing technology in order to eradicate diseases. We can think about cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, Tay-Sachs disease, and the amount of despair that a family experiences while taking care of a child that could die before the age of four years old. I believe that we should have every tool in our arsenal available in the battle to end diseases. I want to make some distinctions, though, as we move forward between one, therapy and enhancement, and also um, positive eugenics and negative eugenics. So. Um, with regard to therapy, most of us might agree, once we can get past the arguments about personhood and the rights of the embryo and the disagreement that we have across the country about research and embryonic research, that we would like to eradicate diseases. And um, somatic cell research provides an opportunity to bypass embryonic research. So that's wonderful. But once these technologies become available therapeutically, we also open the door for them to become available as enhancements. And that may raise more difficult ethical questions for us. So for example, the drug Ritalin is used to treat attention deficit disorder. And it's a therapy. You can go into your doctor's office, describe the symptoms, and receive a prescription. But students are known to also describe the symptoms even though they don't have them, or purchase Ritalin from their classmates. 
And they do this for enhancement purposes, to improve their memory and to study harder and to perform well. And so there's a distinction, and it's also going to be difficult to close that door to enhancement. So enhancements are, are here. How do we address the ethical and social implications of making enhancements and biological enhan enhancements that are going to change the gene pool if, if, if the changes are done to the germline over time. Second, we've had positive eugenics around, as uh, Dr. Melman has mentioned, since the beginning of time, since the beginning of humanity. And in the 1920s, people voluntarily engage in fitter family contests in the United States. So there were fairs where people displayed their physical strength and showed their report cards and competed to show that they were strong and robust, well-bred families. But we also have a dark history related to eugenics, negative eugenics. So positive eugenics is when we encourage positive breeding. Negative eugenics is when we discourage marriages, when those laws that we've passed where we said that black and white people cannot get married, that's an example of negative eugenics. Sterilization laws, and I'll talk more about that when we get to the, sec the section on governance. Um, so there are danger zones, I think, with respect to this technology that we should think about, as well as the potential slippery slope of moving down a road where we have complicated questions about what's normal and what it means to be normal that we have to have. Wow, that was an excellent discussion. And uh, you did exactly what I was hoped for and asked you. You explained the complexity to us. But frankly, you left my head spinning. And so uh, before I ask my second and last question, I want a short, crisp answer, but crisp. And, and, and I want to hear, why do we read in the papers that this Chinese researcher who found a way to protect future children from HIV, why don't we kiss him on both cheeks and give him a Nobel Prize, and instead everybody's dumping on him, even his own government? Why not allow people to do uh, therapeutic and breeding interventions as we already allow in other areas. Now, we are told that we don't have the cost-benefit model. Fine, I, I can see saying we need three more steps. We need tested on 1,000 rats, three pigs, and one chimp. Or give me some details other than say we need to study things more Meanwhile, people are suffering and people are denied the choices. Brief answer from each. Which direction? Uh, start with you. Well, I think that you identified two distinct conversational points. So one is, should we allow these enhancements? Yes, but if they're safe and effective. He Jiankui engaged in research without adequate ethical review and he engaged in a study that has not proven to be safe and effective. And those young embryos, those eventually they're going to be adults, are going to, if they make it, are going to have to live with the consequences of um, the science, that, the experiments that he conducted on them. There's even evidence that he may have um, impacted their cognitive function with those experiments. Improved. I think there's, there's, I've seen the articles that say that he's improved, but I don't know when we'll know for sure what happened. And I'll let others, I'll give others a chance to comment. So I, I had the um, honor um, as well as um, the opportunity to see what I would perceive as 
one of the milestones of science that we don't want to repeat. To be in Hong Kong um, when uh, Dr. He made his announcement, I was talking about my research. And it became very clear right then that there were a number of questions about the safety of what he did for those children. And so thinking about that one example, that is why we should not be doing that anywhere else at this point. That is why a moratorium is extremely important at this point with regards to germline gene editing. We don't know the risk. We don't know for those twins. We don't know for other potential individuals of germline editing. What is the risk for that individual? And what is the risk for future generations? That's the reason. But that's why I also argue that now is the time that we really do need to continue to do research, study somatic gene editing, and work on the technique to get it to be really something that can truly benefit large populations with the burden of disease today. So uh, HET actually made it really easy for the scientific community because it was a terribly designed experiment without oversight. <laughs> he made it very, very easy for us to say, absolutely not. That is beyond bounds. It shouldn't have happened. There were other therapies available. He did it without appropriate review. The people who um, he enrolled were not fully informed. They were coerced and the experiment didn't work properly. It's very easy to say that that is just completely out of the scientific community and not us, right? It would have been much more difficult if it was a well-controlled experiment with appropriate oversight, appropriate consent, and for a mutation that reduced suffering. That would have left us with a much harder conversation right now because a lot of people would be on board with that in the scientific community and beyond the scientific community. But that's not what we got. <laughs> um, so it's very, it's very easy to dismiss what happened. Yeah, so the distinction between objecting to something on principle um, and objecting to the way it was done because it wasn't done properly. Interesting question is, we, you know, we, we've heard people say, uh, we need to do more research on this, and what are we concerned about? We're concerned about unintended effects on the children who are born as a result, but we're also interested in the unforeseen uh, effects on future generations. So how do you test that? How many generations do we have to monitor before we decide that something, that this is sufficiently safe and effective that it can be, for example, marketed commercially? And how do you, how do you, uh, how do you sort of uh, compel the offspring of, uh, in these families to submit to being studied, right, when they didn't consent to having the procedure done on them in the first place? So how many, you know, I mean, we can do this on 10 generations of mice, but does that, is that sufficient to tell us what's going to happen with 10 generations of humans? So, I mean, yes, we need more research, but we also need to determine how much research is enough before it can go forward. In a moment, okay? I promise you. Well, uh, we need to move on, so I have one more question, then we want to get you into the conversation, and then we'll find out if you're satisfied with what you heard so far. Uh, I'm not home quite there yet. I mean, uh, the moratorium is not this one rogue Chinese who does things inappropriately. The moratorium is 
across the board. And so I, I'd like to hear more at this question you just asked, how many more generations before we can move on? But we have one more question and then, and you add anything you want, of course. So the so last question I want to ask is not about individual choices, but about public policy. And again, for me, there is an, a telling example uh, where we have very clear, very beneficial public policies on genetic editing. And that is PQU. Uh, I t already told you that I had five sons. Each, each one of them, the government went and took a drop of the blood of their heels. By the way, the same to happen to all your children, if you have any mistakes about that. Uh, nobody asked me anything. I didn't sign any consent form. The government decided that it's in the public interest to discover if children have a genetic defect called as PKU, because if your children have that, the government tells you, if you put them on a diet, they're going to be fine. If not, they're going to be severely hurt. So here the public saw a major benefit and imposed it, period. And the question I'm asking, uh, of course, just to provoke a good discussion, why would you not do the same thing for other horrible things? Will I start again? Okay. <laughs> Well, I'd like to start by talking about uh, Troy Duster's book, Backdoor to Eugenics. And he made a distinction between walking through the front door of eugenics and said, the front door is closed. And that is because of what people learned about Hitler's Nazi Germany. And he argues, and this book was written in 2003, he argues that there was a distaste for creating the perfect baby and selecting perfect features. However, what gene editing technology will offer us and what he argues in vitro fertilization technologies offer us is a chance for parents to at least remove what they define as defects and to have a healthy baby or a baby with advantages in society. And so we can discuss the fact that it's unlikely that we will have social control and government policies that mandate eugenics. And that parents instead will have the choice. And through consumer demand, they will, dem they will drive these technologies. And we can discuss the role of government in allowing that to happen um, or um, having certain public health policies. We have um, the chance to eliminate conditions like the measles, right? And maybe that's okay and that's easy. But what about other conditions, like cr other complex conditions, like cancer, diabetes? What about criminality and genes for criminality? I think that it, I was referring earlier to danger zones and to the potential for a slippery slope. And that's where we have to have the conversation. So someone might argue that the government, we might want to get the government involved in um, gene editing related to public health. But how should we move forward when it comes to conditions that have an environmental role to play? And I would like to pass the mic down to give my colleagues a chance to speak as well. But some of the concerns I have relate to genetic exceptionalism and focusing on genetics and believing that genetics is the answer and that genetic determines our, genetics determines our fate and not considering the social determinants of health and the role of the environment and how that should play into conversations. 
as well as our, our beliefs about what's normal in society. So with your question, um, I think one of the most things that's having a positive public health impact from a genetics perspective today is newborn screening. Um, the ability to get information at the time of the birth of your child that's important that if you act on it, it can improve the health of that child. Uh, and it's really from a public health and a population level, one of the important things that's happened within the field of genetics over the last 50 years. I think one of the issues, both with regards to thinking about germline gene editing, somatic gene editing, and newborn screening, is our need to have public conversations like this, public education around genetics and genomics, so that the public can make decisions and understand the concepts and understand the difference between newborn screening and gene editing, to understand what is a gene, what is a genome, how is that information important, and what are the limitations of that information when we think about our lives and our health, that it's not all about the genes, it's not genetic deterministic, but it's how do we understand that information with regards to our health and our traits. So I argue that newborn screening is an important part of what has happened in this country for public health. But we're really in a position now where genetics education, how do we actually have these dialogues and these conversations about these issues as we frame and make policies in this country, but across the world? And so how do we do that to actually help make sure that the citizens are making the decisions and not a few researchers or policymakers. Yeah, I want to also extol the virtues of newborn screening, but then point out that, gosh, it was now a decade ago, when those newborn blood spots, the little spots that went on the piece of paper to do that test, were used by researchers without the parents' permission, the parents sued not because they didn't believe in the value of that test, not because they didn't believe in and value research, but because they weren't asked. They weren't asked permission. And as a result, over five million blood spots were incinerated, which is a tremendous loss to the public health community and to the research community. But it was because we didn't ask. And I would extend your comments on public engagement, which I completely agree with, we need to, on questions of human meaning, we need to ask the public how the public in any given jurisdiction feels about it. And it can't just be science communication. It can't just be me coming here and giving you a lecture about it, saying, okay, do you have any questions about the genetics? Because the scientists can tell you whether we can do something. And the scientists hopefully can tell you whether it's safe. The scientists can't tell us whether we should do it. That's a question for all of us. And the engagement with the public needs to be the sort where what the public says actually has an impact on what happens, not just letting you all know what's happening. Just one second. So let's talk about PQ. Yeah. You think we should change the policy that when a child is born, the government should, or the doctors should go and ask the parents, 
if they want to have the PQU test done or not. If the parents say no, we shouldn't do it. Actually, Maryland, I believe, is still the only state that requires informed consent for that test. So I live in Maryland. So, but what are you favor then? No, I think, again, I, as I said, I think newborn screening is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. It's an important public health intervention. I agree that it's probably the most important thing genetics has done. Um, I think we're probably getting a bit too far with it. Um, but a certain number of tests are critically important, useful to the family, the particular child, and benefits that particular child. Yeah, but um, so PKU is a kind of easy case because if you intervene with change in the diet, the child can flourish. Otherwise, the child is going to have a very bad time. But the, the newborn screening can also test for uh, con uh, the conditions, if you will, that, that we can't treat, right? And so the justification for that is, well, the parents need to know so they can plan ahead, they can make financial plans, they're going to have to take care of a child with disabilities and so on. Then there are additional things that might be tested for in newborn screening. And the reason for that is that the parents might want to have other children. And if they know that they've had, they have a child with a genetic, uh, you know, mut uh, uh, adverse mutation, then they will think twice about having another child. So imagine that. Here's the federal government, well, state and federal government basically saying you have to have this test with the exception of Maryland, you don't have a choice. And one of the reasons is so that you can avoid having children with disabilities. I mean, talk about eugenics. There but you different go. Different states are making different decisions about. But what is that good? You see, you're guns for libertarians. You, you don't think about public costs, but you think about individual costs. Uh, but I don't want us to take more time. I want to implicate everybody else in there. Before we do that, though, did I let you finish? Yeah, I was, yeah, sure. Yeah, I did. I'm fine. Uh, we, just one more step before you all join in here. So when I first uh, uh, started putting together the panel, uh, I heard that uh, uh, there was a very unusual professor in town who had a PhD in genetic and in sociology. Uh, professor uh, Dalton Connolly from Princeton, and I asked him to participate in the panel. And he said, when is that? And I said, March 24. He said, well, you know what? I'm otherwise occupied. I'm expecting a baby on that day. And so I recognize the genetic priority. But uh, the young Connolly did us a favor and he arrived a little early. And as a result, we have Professor Connolly with us and he's going to join the conversation. So. Uh, one point of cl clarification, D.C. does not require the uh, PKU test either because we turned it down, actually, because uh, this is uh, he, uh, my son that was born 10 days ago was a uh, IVF baby. So we, we did genetic testing of ourselves before to see if we were carriers for certain diseases. And there was, unless there's some crazy de novo mutations going on, there was zero risk of him having PKU, so why have another um, prick uh, of his heel and cause pain? So we, we declined it. So I, I don't think Maryland's the only jurisdiction where you can decline it. Um, but one to two percent, I think, are the best estimates today of babies 
are now done through IVF because the age at first birth is rising, so forth. People need help um, getting pregnant. Um, and that raises, I think, a different set of ethical questions that you guys have not addressed that, um, that I think are much more in terms of time pressing right now because of technology. So um, as Deborah said, the germline editing for um, human Mendelian diseases is a pretty rare case. It, it has to be a case where, where you can't do prenatal genetic screening and pick the embryo that's at least just a carrier for disease, if not completely free of it. You'd have to have two, most Mendelian, single gene Mendelian diseases are um, recessive. Um, so you'd need two parents that are both affected to have no possibility of having a healthy gene. Or if it's dominant, you have to have the, 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 the affected parent have two copies of a dominant gene. That's a, those are very rare events. And, I, and also, most diseases are not single gene Mendelian diseases. So I think the, so I, before we, we can't even get that right now. And I think it's gonna be a long time before CRISPR is able to do, you know, kind of corrections across the genome without major off-target effects that are gonna be more deleterious than helpful. Um, but most of the things that are big public health concerns, diabetes, um, obesity, schizophrenia and depression, all these things are, are, are controlled by thousands of small effects across the entire genome. So today, we do have a technology of uh, that there's nothing stopping from parents like myself who are using IVF or parents who don't even need IVF but want to do it anyway from instead of editing their babies, selecting them. So you can go in and you could just, they take a, they take a couple cells from the part of the embryo that will become the placenta and they currently, it's pretty routine to test for major chromosomal anomalies like trisomy 21, Down syndrome. There's zero um, technological barriers um, to, to, to actually amplifying enough DNA where you can do um, whole genome sequencing or at least genotyping to get a risk for a complex disease like schizophrenia, depression, or something on the enhancement side, cognitive ability, height, um, BMI. There's now these sort of what we call polygenic scores or polygenic risk scores that predict um, these complex outcomes pretty poorly, but still if you think about some, an embryo at the bottom end of the distribution versus the top end of the distribution, there's a huge difference in risk there. Um, so currently the, the, there is actually a startup uh, in Boston that purports to offer this kind of testing for embryos for parents who want to pick the, um, the quote-unquote smartest embryo to implant. Uh, and if any of you have seen the 1997 very prescient film, Gattaca, the, the genetic counselor in that film says, it's still you, it's just the best of you. Because you're picking the chosen embryo uh, that, that on whatever dimension you care about, height and athletic ability, uh, uh, educational potential, um, disease risk, you're gonna, you can pick, you might have a trade-off. You might have one that has a higher risk of schizophrenia, but it's predicted to be, um, you know, have lower heart disease risk or whatever. Um, 
And uh, anyway, th that's, that's the reality today. And I think um, there is zero regulations in the United States about it. Uh, other countries are much more strict. Uh, Israel doesn't even allow uh, surrogacy, I think, if, if I remember correctly. Um, I think France doesn't even allow you to pick the gender of your child in IVF. Um, but we, we, we are the, you know, the free market USA, so you can do whatever you want. And it's just a matter of doctors' personal preferences. So on the governance question, I think notwithstanding the Chinese CRISPR babies, which are kind of an anomaly, I think this is a much more pressing um, decision that society has to make about whether we're going to allow that kind of prenatal um, kind of comprehensive genetic screening and selection. And when we get to the point where it's, you're not choosing between three or four embryos, maybe, if you're lucky, but you're choosing between 100,000 because we've learned to turn epithelial cells from your cheek into eggs to be fertilized, and there's no limit. And there's also, then IVF is much less um, invasive and painful and you know, difficult to, to do. I think it's going to be much more popular. Hank really talks about that moment, the coming moment. So um, d it, should that be legal? Uh, it's, it's not creating something that wasn't already there in nature. Um, it's just, you know, in, in, the, in the free market parlance, allowing people to exercise their free will about their own DNA. But of course, that can bake in because I'm assuming it'll be accessed by the most uh, richest and most educated people at first. It'll bake in um, literally into our genes existing social inequalities if, people, if some people are able to pursue it and some people are not. Thank you very much. Could I just say one thing to expand on a point? So it actually takes what you were just saying and wraps back to the beginning about the polygenic risk scores in embryos. I mean, it is the case that all of the genetic sequence we have today, which is thousands and thousands and thousands of genomes, and of all of the cell lines we have, 80% or more are from white folks people of European descent. So what we know about the most complicated genetic diseases is about white folks, not about everybody else. So the polygenic risk scores are not going to be relevant to everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, Professor Connolly, right, um, had uh, uh, sort of alluded to this, imagine what it would be like if the government said to you, you cannot choose to have the child that you want to have, right? Imagine if they said, well, you know, we're not going to let you select the sex, we're not going to let you, if we could have, for example, a, 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 a battery of tests that might predict non-disease characteristics, the government, if the government said to you, you cannot do that, that's an extraordinary step for the government to take in this country, right? I mean, I'm watching, and, and you know, why would they do that? Well, uh, assuming it's not a safety issue. So we've, we've got, the technology works, right? And, we, and we, we, can, we have predicted results, okay? Then, you know, because it's, uh, it, it exacerbates inequality, uh, because it may lead to uh, social, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the, um, 
a dismantling of the belief in equality of opportunity because you know the 1% will do this it's 30 what is an IVF child cost now about $35,000 for a live birth and not everybody can afford it so imagine if the government said for those reasons you cannot do this that's an extraordinary thing in this country right i mean i'm watching uh, Maseratis go by outside. I can't afford most, I don't know how many of you can afford Maseratis, but the government doesn't say you can't, we can't sell Maseratis because not everybody will have access to them. So, I mean, the interest, I mean, important question of what is the appropriate role for the government versus parents versus geneticists and, and healthcare clinicians in making these decisions? I believe that you wanted to join in on this inequality issue. So please do. Sure. Um, I don't think we can answer those questions. I'm glad we're raising them, but we won't be able to answer them because the people who matter to these discussions are not all here, right? So the disability community, people from diverse cultural backgrounds who have very different feelings, who either don't know about prenatal screening, learn about it when they first visit their doctor, have low health literacy and low genetic numeracy, or have cultural um, values or perspectives or religious beliefs that are very different from society, the mainstream society that we read about. And so everyone, that we need to have diverse segments of the society talk about what should be the policies going forward and include them. I wanted to bring up early that, earlier that when we first discovered recombinant DNA, we had the ACLMR conference in 1974. We put a, a moratorium on uh, our, our DNA research, and then we set up the um, RDNA Advisory Council and um, multiple steps of, and levels of ethical review for recombinant DNA research. So we have a precedent for it. We can evaluate how well it worked and how we should incorporate it into conversations today about uh, genetic editing. A, a major concern of mine is diversity and inclusion at all levels in genomic research, from the participants to the leaders and to the people who are asking the questions. And so for us to talk about polygenic, uh, polygenic risk scores and all other types of genomic research studies that just don't include populations but um, white populations is going to uh, not just uh, bake inequalities into who we are, but it's only going to re reveal information about a very small segment of the population, and then the rest of us will make decisions as we will. And whether that's a good or bad thing remains, I think, to be seen. So just to remind, you talked a lot and very eloquently about we couldn't imagine the government prohibiting people from using these things. The opposite danger, we also need to think about some more. What if the government required it? Because we a lot of talk about individuals' preferences, but there are public consequences. And so if you can imagine, as we get more and more worried about the rising healthcare costs, that uh, we'll say, look, this is a very easy test. You can prevent uh, the public being stuck with a $5 million bill, we'll require you to do those tests. And of course, that is a kind of form of genetics that I think we all are concerned about. The floor is yours. David, you please join the microphone here. And well, just in response to your last statement, of course, the government's requiring that children before they go to school have a measles vaccination. And there's an uproar about that. So I'm just mentioning it as an example. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Top of the day, how are you people doing? I happen to be a behavioral neuroscientist, and I invited a number of my students to come here. So I have two questions, all right? And then one little very succinct comment. 
I want to ask you if I pr pronounce your name correctly. Professor Idziani, uh, were you affiliated with the Carter administration when the um, Global 2000 report was generated? I was. You were? Okay. I kind of intuitively thought so. I wanted to ask um, Professor um, Melman, um, what prompted you to actually generate a book entitled Transhumanist Dreams and Dystopian Nightmares? I want to know what the catalyst for that title. And the final comment that I want to make, because I'm not going to hang around and take up other people's time. I applaud Professor Matthews, what's your name? For, for pointing out that 80% um, of the data is kind of skewed toward what's going on with my vanilla brothers and sisters, all right? And we know what that means. So my question is embedded in this statement. Have you all given any thought to what the military applications will be directly related to this? Because I do a lot of consulting with people that have traumatic brain injury because I'm a behavior neuroscientist. And I want to know, as you respond to your title of your book, have you all thought about the military applications of what you're talking about? Thank you so much. Uh, well, as for the title of my book, um, I really resent, uh, that was the press that forced that title on me because I thought it was much too cumbersome. Um, that book came out of a, t a grant from the Templeton Foundation to examine transhumanism, and so they, they wanted me to write that book. As far as the military is concerned, um, I have to leave a little early to catch a plane to, to Fort Leavenworth where the uh, uh, Army Command and General Staff College is having a day-long meeting tomorrow at which I'll be talking about military uses of genomics uh, and enhancements. So uh, the military, and DARPA, of course, has been very interested in that for a long time. Maybe teasing us to tell us a little more. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he could, but he'd have to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let more questions. Hi. Um, so thank you for the conversation. I think it's really interesting. And I'm curious what you all think about uh, the effects of genetic engineering about biodiversity. And when I think about um, probably most of us are okay with the idea of uh, editing like crops or it happens regardless of whether or not we're okay with it. Uh, maybe we're okay with uh, even editing animals if we want to make it so that mosquitoes can't pass Zika from one to another, right? That's probably something a lot of us are okay with. But we know that as soon as you edit some crops, then that means that other farmers who are using the non-engineered version of that are no longer competitive. And I think the professor mentioned earlier, I mean, we can just assume whether it's legal or not um, you only have to look at the admissions scandal the past week to know that people are going to be doing this. And unlike, you, you can rescind someone's admission, but once someone is born, they're actually out there in the world having children with other people. So what are we going to do as a society to deal with the inevitable consequences of this? And what does it mean for biodiversity if uh, we start to select for traits that are very limited? So with regard to human bio, so on the crop side of things, that's a, that's actually where I think most of the ethical issues are right now. I mean, there's a huge amount of CRISPR engineering going on in agricultural animals and crops right now. And uh, FDA, I believe FDA's current position is if it's an edit of existing DNA and you're not taking DNA from another organism and putting it in, for example, the crop, that it doesn't count as a genetically engineered food. So there's a CRISPR modifications in agriculture are not going to have the kind of regulation we're used to. Um, I think, and then in animals, crop, um, agricultural animals as well. So lots of interesting stuff going on there. On the human side, I'm not, I personally am not concerned about the effects 
of this technology on biodiversity generally in humans because um, in part because you know we can't get people in Flint or my kids in Baltimore City Public Schools fresh water. So we're not gonna get everybody IVF and CRISPR on top of it. Um, it would be, it would take a lot of people to use this technology to make babies with the same modification to cause a big genetic change in the human genome. Now, if all of the one percenters suddenly stopped having sex and just doing this, and they were all making similar sorts of changes, then yes, that would absolutely have an effect over generations. Um, but globally, this isn't going to change biodiversity of the global human population. Um, I think that's all I want to say. Hello, what an excellent, excellent um, panel. Um, I have a comment and a question. My comment um, is, uh, so for the past eight years, I've been the director of the nation's newborn screening education resource center. And so I just wanted to point out that it's not just PKU, that there are, you know, some states are screening for 40 up to 60 different conditions. And most families, when they find something out, there's been no family history. So I had to do my little education plug for those of us in the room who um, are not as familiar. Um, one thing that was brought up is education and actually having dialogue with people. And we know that so often, though there's a lot of money in science and genomics and genetics, a lot of that money does not go into actually fostering that long-term um, dialogue. And I just wanted to see if you all had any ideas around that or any initiatives that you could share to really do that work. I mean, I know my two colleagues at the end are doing a lot of that, so thank you. So I'll start. Um, clearly the drumbeat is out there with uh, the conversation about gene editing, that we have to have conversations with the public and dialogues. And I argue that Maybe now is the time that we put more resources and funding focused in that area. The National Academy's report recommended that. The reports that just came out in the last couple of weeks around the moratorium um, said we need to have dialogue with the public. And I think the question is, is how do we do it? And what are some of the strategies to actually engage the public? And then where do we identify the resources from? One approach with research is actually that a proportion of that research is actually doing that type of work. Um, but I think we need a number of different strategies to make sure that we're engaging all types of communities uh, within our country and across the world. Can you give another sentence on this last point? It, it, when we talk about major ethical decisions, is it really simply a question of the, uh, the public's voice? What if the public all say, I think at least in 1950, you could have gotten a very strong majority that women are second-class citizens. So are we really want to leave ethical decisions to simply public dialogue? I, I think what you want is you want to hear the voices of the public and the perspectives of the public and bring the public together to help make informed decisions. It's not that just the decisions are going to be made by public, but by individuals who are experts in the area so that there's this balance. But if we leave the voices out, we know things are going to go wrong. And so I think the, the question from my perspective is, well, how do we actually do this? This is one forum that we've brought together people and then there'll be a number of people that will see this on YouTube and C-SPAN or whatever. But, but 
but we have to go beyond that. And we got to go beyond that in a type of way that we can be informed by the different views of the public, but also bring experts to help to, to frame what decisions are made. Okay. And I'd just like to add on that expert piece, um, a concrete thing that would be helpful would be to change tenure and promotion. <laughs> which sounds super wonky, but in academia, you get zero credit for talking to the public. Zero credit, and it takes time away from publishing and writing grants and doing your research. So it, there's disincentive to taking time out to go and talk to the public. So those experts are locked in their labs when they could be incentivized to be out talking to folks. And I think scientists are, often, not, not all scientists are safe for public consumption, but scientists often are the best communicators of their science because they're so excited, they're so enthusiastic, and that enthusiasm is infectious, but they're locked in their labs. And I'd like to add to that um, two things. One, we should involve young people in our strategies. So just a quick example, I was doing some work at a local public high school and I asked the students how we should get the word out about an event and I suggested a flyer. And they all laughed at me and said, no, 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 we're all on Instagram now. <laughs> so just learning new ways of engaging with young people, engaging young people to help us move forward. Another I think is um, we should involve the public, Congress, legislators, um, and journalists. Um, scientists put out reports and describe genetic results and often in ways that get picked up and sound bites get translated in ways that either people don't understand or misinterpret. And so I think we need to work with the various communicators so that we can come up with a way of communicating findings and ethical and policy questions in ways that the public can relate to and understand. Thank you. Good evening couple of things, a suggestion and a question. The suggestion toward Professor Sioni's question on how long we'd have to do this risk assessment before we could proceed. I uh, toss out the idea, maybe not 10 generations, but maybe three, and for a while working with other animals and doing some, looking at probabilities and doing some kind of stochastic modeling that could allow us to have an idea of risk and revise those probabilities as, as we get more data from other animal studies, then maybe reach a point where we can make some intelligent decisions based on risk, but with probabilistic modeling, stochastic modeling to kind of head that way. But the question, because I'm going to face some biology students tomorrow, and we'll talk about a lot of this stuff. My understanding is that genes, it's one thing to edit a genome, another thing to switch on and off genes. I'm not sure CRISPR's, our CRISPR work is quite that well refined. And if it isn't, then we're much farther down. We're not quite as far down the road as we think we are if we can't switch genes on and off intelligently. And to my understanding, that occurs in the womb. So the conditions in the womb of the developing embryo are what determine what genes get switched on and off. So if we can't really control that, then I think we're not quite as far as we think we are. That's just a question for my students tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think we all have to understand is that we have to be very, very humble when we think about this science. I mean, up, um, um, as, as this gentleman just mentioned, I mean, the, the genes that are the, the stretches of DNA that turn genes on and off, what did we used to call those 20, that stretch 20 years ago? We used to call it junk DNA because we didn't think it did anything. 
right? In the early 2000s, we still thought there were 100,000 human genes, and it was only subsequently we discovered there's, what, 25,000, 26,000. So we are really neophytes. We are babes in the genetic woods, and we have to be, that's why we have to be very careful about what we do so that we can, and do the kinds of research so that we have some idea of what the effects of what we do will be. Hello, uh, good evening. Um, uh, my name is Steve Morrison. I work downtown at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Um, I wanted to bring the conversation back to Hong Kong and the aftermath of what happened uh, at, the, at the summit there with Dr. Hu. Um, a couple of quick comments and then a question for you about what's the path going ahead. The comments are, there has been a call for a moratorium, but there's not a consensus. The scientific community is split. Very easy. So it would be useful to know a bit more about that. Calling Dr. Hu a rogue is only part of the story. Before this happened, he was a star in the system in China in which they had designated those scientists who were the most high, high, had the highest promise and showered them with resources, access to labs and the like. So it begs a question around the incentives and the system in which this scientist was operating. Um, the third issue that's come out of that is a disturbing one, which is a number of prominent American scientists had knowledge and active dialogue with Dr. Hu in this period, but stayed silent. And that's raised questions of ethical obligation, but also a question of if they had chosen not to be silent, who are they supposed to talk to, right? So. On the question of where do we go from here, WHO's created now a committee that met last week, called for a registry, 18-month project of trying to figure out the scientific side. The National Academy of Medicine's partnered with the British and Hong Kong societies in creating a commission to move ahead in trying to lay out how, how we're going to deal with germline editing into the future. What is the pathway of getting there? Now for us, here, it's even more difficult because there's a ban on germline editing of embryos in the United States. And so how do we move ahead in trying to lead forward, looking forward, and what are the prospects in your views? What are the prospects for getting feasible and meaningful results in the next, say, 18 to 24 months? Thank you. Just one comment on that. You've raised a very essential point, and that is this is not a, a merely a domestic issue. It's an international issue, if only because of something called genetic tourism, which is that if they allow this sort of thing in pick your country, then people could go to that country and then have, have these things done to them or their offspring. Um, I wrote an article a while ago called Any DNA to Declare, and I had this vision of, you know, we go through customs, you have to, when you leave the country, you give a DNA sample, when you come back, you give another, and they compare them. But, you know, I'm, I don't mean to be facetious, but the question is, you know, we, our international con uh, uh, controls are so difficult to implement on anything Imagine having to try to, you know, trying to harmonize international position on this sort of thing. It's a daunting task. We actually did have a proposal during the early embryonic stem cell, during the, the height of the embryonic stem cell debates. There was a, a proposal that you should, that going overseas for an embryonic-based therapy should be criminalized here in the U.S. I believe that the only thing that we 
exert this kind of ger um, extraterritorial jurisdiction over is sex with children. Is that correct? Does anyone else know? I think that's the only thing that you can be arrested for here in the US if you go overseas and do it and then come back. But there was a proposal to do this with embryonic stem cell-based therapies in the mid-2000s. So it could be a thing, but I don't know, as you point out, the sort of enforcing of that sort of regime is <laughs> um, daunting and disturbing in the extreme. Um, with regard to your question about sort of what kind of progress can we make over the next 18 months? Well, and the question, honestly, of to whom would, you know, the Matt and others have reported, right? We don't have, we don't have a mechanism for that. You know, they had these conversations. They thought that they had been persuasive in saying, no, don't do this. Um, they kept silent and it happened. But it's unclear to me who, who they should have told, right? Was it, you know, Stat News or the New York Times or, um, it's not clear what the reporting structure would be. Perhaps the WHO committee can serve now as that structure in addition to the registry that they propose. Um, embryo editing in the US is not illegal in vitro in a dish. It's illegal with public money with NIH funding, but not with private funding. It's the taking that and implanting that modified material in a woman for reproductive purposes. FDA has exerted jurisdiction over that, um, and that is currently illegal. What? So I, I would just frame a part of your question. How do we build scientific consensus? Because uh, I think that's really what your question is really focused on. And I don't have an answer. But I think your question is right on and that we need to, we're at a point now that we have to figure out ways across borders to create scientific consensus. And so that that can help influence what happens next. Um, but I think your questions were right on and I think they're the ones that people are struggling with on how do we move forward in a way that will actually make sure that we avoid this. Um, my last comment is, I was really um, heartened by how quickly people across the world said this was wrong. They said it immediately and strongly, and I think that is a positive for what the scientific community is doing across the world. Well, I'm a little different. I'm a nurse midwife, anthropologist. And in terms of listening to people, I cannot be more supportive of that statement. Um, in 1970, I was listening to young people who were saying, I don't want to go back to that hospital. There are too many cesarean sections being done and so forth. I'm here in the district, leave, having left New York because of the maternal mortality in this country. And I don't mean to downplay what you're doing, uh, because I, I wouldn't want to do that. But um, I think that we, need, we have other items that we need to give attention to. And um, 
I can only tell you how rewarding it is to work with low-income people. We, the agency I was with, which is called Maternity Center Association, whose first executive was Frances Perkins, in, uh, way back in 1917. And uh, here I am. I'm now 92 years old. But I'm at, I'm at it because I know we have an answer <clears throat> excuse me, to a major problem. And I could have raised a question, well, when you work with people on genomics, and how do you guarantee the mother that she will survive labor and birth? Or do you? That is such an important point. I'm so glad that you made those comments. Thank you. Earlier, I referenced the topic genetic exceptionalism. And that's always been a huge challenge with genetics. And a lot of people are asking, what has genomics done for us? And we know there have been benefits of newborn screening, but health disparities remain. And there is some discussion that perhaps genomic research can help in part with health disparities. But there are other challenges, like low maternal birth weight. That relates not to genetics, but experiences in the health system and bias and stereotyping and stigma. And so when it comes to complex diseases, when we start talking about um, mortality, as well as heart disease and cancer, when we're looking at populations, we're, we're focusing genomic research. We're not only putting our money into genomic research and other high impact and uh, technologies, but we are focusing on European populations of European ancestry. But when it comes to health disparities, the populations that are typically affected by health disparities, there's overlap with racial and ethnic status in the country. And so when we communicate the disparities that we see and we link that discussion to genetics, not only are we neglecting health disparities, but we are sometimes making inappropriate associations between a person's experience with health disparities and their genetic makeup. And there's a risk that we um, in a eugenic society where there's negative eugenics, there's a risk that we will, could one day say that genetics is more important, that we should continue to put more money into genetics, and that um, people's, the lives that people live are as a result of genetics. And that's just one of the dangers that I think we have to be careful of. No, I completely agree. I mean, I'm a human geneticist by training, but there are so many topics where genetics is deployed and it is just not, <laughs> not the main issue, not the main issue. I mean, you know, genetics of educational attainment. Tell me what zip code you were born in. Like, don't tell me what your genetics is. I mean, genetics is incredibly powerful and super interesting from my perspective, but it's not the answer to every problem. And I, I guess I would just say, as we seek to improve health and reduce the burden of disease, that we have to recognize what are the major causes of that burden. And it's typically not where there's a genetic component. Um, but it's also important for us to study and understand how we can use genetic information to help to reduce that burden of disease. So there's a balance, but clearly we need to recognize that the major burden of disease in our country and across the world has nothing to do with genetics, but it has to do with access to care. So. 
And can I just respond to one thing that Max said, even though he's not here to defend himself anymore? So <laughs> he said, you know, imagine in this country if the government said you can't have that because it will exacerbate existing inequalities. Imagine what, if, what would happen if our government would say, no, <laughs> let's think about how we're deploying this technology because it's going to exacerbate inequalities. <laughs> so there's a positive spin to the statement is all I'm saying. Well, since we are calling for stretching our imagination, uh, uh, let, let me close this by saying uh, I predict, and I'm happy we're on the record, that in the lifetime of many of you in this room, I'm sorry, uh, absolutely, no, 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 I just didn't see you. And thank you for calling my attention, please. Sorry. Uh, my name is Carol Cogill, local resident and uh, with no scientific qualifications. And I appreciate from your remarks that uh, before birth is kind of a unique opportunity to tweak the genes so that we don't have problems later. But my question is more about people who are born or here now, and particularly the heartbreak of things like schizophrenia, MS, that typically strike young adults. Is there any way that this science can be used while they're, after they're born, but to kind of prevent these things from even happening? Thank you. Yes, <laughs> um, absolutely. And that, uh, those kinds of somatic therapies for the sick person in front of us, or the person who is destined to get sick but has not developed symptoms yet, um, is something that we're working on and is not controversial in the same way that the germline modifications are controversial. And we have had for decades ways to regulate that science. And we have a good understanding of the ethics of that science. And it's a tr you started your remarks by saying how exciting and promising that science is, and I completely agree. No, we are in a really bright time with regards to the potential of ability to modify and address a number of diseases. And so I think we should all go away with that excitement. Anybody else? I don't want to deny anybody the right to get their genes in order. <laughs> but let me go back where I tried to be a moment ago and make a bold prediction that uh, in the lifetime of many of you in this room, I believe parents will design the their babies, and they will choose not the complicated uh, things that we heard about earlier, intelligence and such. I'm not sure those are genetic driven and to what extent. But the simple things, uh, the basic attributes, they will. And I will predict that the government will insist that those things which, uh, in which you can avoid a major deformity, and again, is a question, what we call a deformity, and we need to get the public involved to discuss it. But there will be understanding that if you are about to impose a major public cost and suffering on your children, and you can avoid it by a little genetic test, we will ask you uh, uh, to do that. Now, uh, next month, uh, we're going to have uh, another dialogue in April. And that is going to be between the left and the center. There are those on the left 
who feel that we need to uh, shake up this whole system, not just elect a different kind of president and Congress, but make major, major changes in our economic, social, and political structure. And there are people in the center who think we should be incremental and careful and not uh, uh, that these bring up these revolutionary ideas, in effect, will perpetuate uh, the current uh, difficulties. So I hope you all uh, join us in, in April. If you cannot join us in April, in May we're going to discuss if it's time to limit free speech, to avoid hate speech, to uh, avoid fascist speech. And so we have all kind of exciting dialogues coming. Thank you for joining us tonight. Please help me thank the panel for an excellent discussion. Presented by Axelon. 